as language models get larger and more and more engineering problems need to be solved to train and deploy modern systems, more people are starting to express the sentiment that the real skills you need to do AI are primarily engineering skills. We're hearing people start to call AI an engineering discipline for precisely reasons like this. I think there's a germ of truth here, in that engineering skills are vital to the field. But I think the statement isn't quite complete. The scientist is the person who forces us to contend with questions about why things work, the basic limitations of what we're doing. If you think you can solve every problem ahead of you with a larger model or more training data, maybe this viewpoint makes a lot of sense. But today's conversation reminded me that there are many other fundamental questions to be solved. Today's guest is Sewan Min, a fifth-year PhD student in natural language processing at the University of Washington. Her work seeks to build a general-purpose machine learning system that can understand natural language and solve real-world problems. Her work reminds us that even in the realm of very empirical investigations, the scientist is vital. She poses and answers questions with rigor and thoughtfulness, which I think are important virtues for a scientist. The role of a scientist in doing machine learning today isn't to figure out the engineering barriers to training the largest language models today, but to understand the fundamental limitations, what we need to overcome if we really want to close the gaps between today's models and our aspirations for the field. This is the Gradient Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Bashir. As always, if you aren't already subscribed to The Gradient, go ahead and follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also follow us on Substack, where you'll get notifications whenever we release a new podcast episode, article, or newsletter. But now, without further ado, Sewan Min. So, Sewan, our first question is always about how you got into AI in the first place. And I really like how you articulated your research goal in this Allen School interview. You said that your goal is to build a system that understands and can reason about natural language at a level that will help people solve problems they face in their daily lives, from answering their queries to detecting false information on the internet. And so I guess I'd love you to answer that question, how you got into AI, perhaps with a view towards how did this become your specific research goal? Um, yeah, sure. So to answer the first question. So yeah, I started getting into machine learning when I was an undergrad student back in South Korea. I think that was like 2015 or 2016. Um, at that time, there was much progress in deep learning in computer vision and games like AlphaGo, but maybe less in NLP, maybe except machine translation. Um, but then I uh, started learning machine learning because it seems to be hot. Um, yeah, and then I visited University of Washington as an exchange student 
And then that was when I first started NLP research with Hana, who is now one of my PhD advisors. Um, and then my first research was about question answering. And then that's how I kind of get into NLP research and publish a first paper. Um, yeah. So from, I guess, those beginnings, how did you, it seems like the way you articulated it in that interview, you do have a pretty specific research program that grew out of this initial interest in question answering. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering how your interest evolved from there. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, so I think I first started question answering simply because uh, at that time my mentor was working on that. Uh, but then I found the problem is very interesting and it's very practical. So I happened to continue working on that for years, even after PhD, um, during my PhD. But I think my research goal has switched a bit. So in the beginning, I was more interested in building a benchmark that can test a specific behavior of the model. Um, and then, so we build a benchmark and we train the model so that the model gains a particular ability. But then um, at some point I realized that benchmarks do not work in that way because we could create a benchmark intending a specific behavior, but the data may not necessarily require the behavior that we intended. So at some point I changed my mind and thought maybe we cannot really uh, make progress in this way, but maybe we want to tackle a more realistic problem that is not designed for a specific behavior of the model, but that's actually a real problem that matters to real people in real life. Because in that case, the problems are justified as themselves. So yeah, I how I get into the current goal of my research, which is to build a practical system that can solve real problems. That makes sense to me. And I, I still remember this fairly provocatively titled essay from a few years ago. It was called Natural Language Processing is Chasing the Wrong Goal. Um, and it feels like it expressed some of the shift that you're speaking to. So it kind of lamented this idea of, of benchmark chasing. And I think it made the pretty well-worn by now argument that kind of in the pursuit of developing systems that understand quote unquote language, um, the sort of proxy metrics we used to assess that kind of became the goal themselves, right? And it was all about getting state of the art on a particular benchmark, as opposed to developing a system that, that really understands language. Exactly. I think it actually have a long history, maybe from 2015, where we have some benchmark, we build a state of the art model, but then it turns out to be broken. We build another benchmark, and then it turns out to be broken. So it has been repeated for a while, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a good place to dive into some of your research on this front. And so... Perhaps we can start on the topic of benchmarks, which I think is really relevant, not just for researchers, but also for, I would suppose, users of AI systems who really want to have an idea of how well systems perform and others who are kind of trying to understand the field from outside a little bit more in terms of 
interrogating the claims that researchers might make. So in particular, I guess where we can start is you had this really interesting paper on multi-hop reading comprehension through question decomposition and rescoring. Could you just give us a little bit of an introduction to what you were thinking about when you began this work? Yeah, sure. So that was actually my first PhD project when I get into PhD. And then this paper is specifically focusing on a problem called multi-hop question answering, which is an instance of question answering problems that requires reasoning over multiple pieces of information. So I think one example is something like, what is the former name of the animal protected by Lomaco? So Lomaco is like the name of the area. So it requires reasoning over two pieces of text because there is one text that says Lomaco protects the habitat of the Bonobo Alps. So the animal refers to Bonobo Alps. And then there is another text that says the Bonobo is formally called the um, Pygmy Chimpanzee. So the Pygmy Chimpanzee is, in this case, the final answer because that's the formal name of the animal that we are referring to. So now you can see this requires two pieces of information because there is no text in the web that contains these two information together. One thing that kind of came up for me as I was reading this paper and that um, we've kind of gone back and forth on a little bit is this notion that multi-hop question answering benchmarks, they're supposed to measure a model's ability to do, well, multi-hop reading comprehension. And one really basic question that I find often gets understudied is whether these benchmarks actually measure what we think they are measuring. And people like Lipton, I think, have pointed out that QA systems that do well don't actually even read all of what they're given. Like, I'm pretty sure they've done ablation studies where instead of giving a model like a full paragraph, you just give it the last sentence. And then its performance on a particular QA benchmark is about the same. So I'm curious how you think about this question of how do we ablate and verify that, quote unquote, more complex reasoning is required for a multi-hop QA benchmark and that this actually occurs in a model that you're verifying? Yeah, that's a really great question because I think that exactly aligns with the research I've been doing. So in the first project, I have been working on this problem and my goal was to build a state-of-the-art model that solved this task because the hope is if we can build a model that does very well on this data set, then the model would be able to reason over multiple pieces of text. Um, But then later, I realized that actually this data set doesn't really require reasoning over multiple text, even though they appear to be. So for instance, if I come back to this question of formal name of the animal protected by Lomaco, it appears to require this multi-up reasoning. But then this data set comes with a set of paragraphs. And if I look at this paragraph, then there is actually only one animal that has former name. Because it's not very common that animal has these two different names. So what that means is I can ignore everything about whether this is protected by this area. I can completely ignore that. I can only look at what is the formal name of the animal. And then that can be answered in one paragraph. So in summary, even though the 
question is compositional, there is actually a shortcut that allows the model to find the answer without reading multiple text. I can't remember if your other paper goes into this, but have you gone about thinking through classifying the different sorts of side information or shortcuts that a model could use to actually do quote-unquote multi-hop? I think you actually address this right in your in your other paper on the subject where you note that there are some sorts of tasks or particular instantiations of a multi-hop question answering benchmark where a model can actually achieve this through single hop reasoning. Yeah, there are multiple classes. One type is um, some of these bridging type of questions where you don't actually need one of the bridges because the other bridge is enough to find the answer. So I think the formal name example belongs to this category. The other example is when the question is asking about the intersection between two information, like who is the like, father of deep learning who is born in Canada. And then let's say there's actually one person who is called the father of deep learning. And then we don't have to care about whether they were born in Canada or not, because one piece of information is enough to find the answer. I have a sort of extension question about this. So I think in your question decomposition work, this at least seemed to me to be addressing questions, statements that were pretty explicitly compositional in nature. And this allowed you to develop this decomp RC system. Um, and I'd love to for you to describe that in, in a moment. But first, um, I, I wonder kind of about the study of questions that are more subtly compositional in nature, if that makes sense. I don't know if I have an example off the top of my head, but you can think of the questions that you kind of posed, you know, who is the father of deep learning that lives in Canada? We can kind of break that apart into these two sub questions. But I imagine that there are many you might want to examine and build systems to answer that hide very complex sub questions. And, and I'm curious how you think about those both from the perspective of developing a benchmark around them, but then also what a modeler might have to do in order to start tackling those questions. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So for this question decomposition paper, the proposal is given a compositional question, we can break it down into a series of sub-questions. So for instance, in case of who's the deep learning, who is the father of deep learning who is born in Canada, then I can first ask who is the father of deep learning and who was born in Canada and find the intersection. And in case of the formal name of the animal question, I can ask which animal is protected by Lumaco and then ask what's the formal name of that animal. So if I answer to each of these sub-questions sequentially, then I can reach the final answer. So that was a proposed method and it was the state of our system back then uh, in the leaderboard. Um, I think one limitation of this approach is it can only deal with multi-hop questions that are compositional. So it should have some explicit structure of the question. But there are other types of questions that require multi-hop reasoning, but it's not compositional. Um, and then actually there are newer data sets that cover such cases. So I remember there is one data set from AI2 
where one of the question is, did Aristoteles use laptop? And it's not compositional. It's a very simple question. But in order to figure this out, you need to know when did he live and then whether the laptop existed then or not. So it's, it requires multiple reasoning, but it's not compositional. That's interesting, especially when you start to think about the different sorts of questions that will require you to either have or establish some form of context that's just not there in the question. Like you and I communicate, and when we say things, there's just a lot of implicit knowledge that's kind of assumed there. And I think that often, of course, you know, that's why common sense reasoning is a research area. Models seem to have trouble with that. And so the development of benchmarks that are really targeting models' ability to kind of suss these things out seems really important. Yeah, exactly. I agree. It's related to common sense reasoning or background information that is not explicitly stated in the question, but human can figure it out. So in your own kind of pivot towards your earlier focus where you were just thinking about QA benchmarking the way it was, and now where you have a more... I guess, refined way of thinking about things in terms of, I want to develop systems. I want to develop benchmarks that really target practical systems. Is there anything you can say on a little bit of a broader level, just about what you've learned about what it means to construct a good benchmark? Yeah, I think that's a hard question and it's (laughs) definitely there is no single answer. Uh, But my belief is we can find the real problem that human faces. So for instance, let's think about question answering in particular. Human ask a lot of questions in real life and a lot of them are very challenging and it's complicated. They're challenging in a different way than the different from the synthetic benchmark that people create. Um, So yeah, hold on, let me think. Sure. So I think that real questions have uh, unique challenges, and sometimes these challenges are not apparent so that it's hard for researchers to come up with from scratch. But if you carefully exa- examine the real questions that people ask, then you can discover new challenges. I think this would be a good segue to some works in which I think you've attempted to articulate some of these challenges through different benchmarks. So. One of the QA tasks you introduced was ambig QA, where you were focusing specifically on ambiguous sorts of questions. And um, I think this was a really is a really interesting test bed along the lines you just described. So I'd love for you to introduce this work. Yeah, sure. I think it's really related to our earlier discussions on looking at the real questions asked by users. So it started from another data set called Natural Questions. It's a data set from Google that consists of real Google queries. So that's what actual users of Google ask in the search engine. And then the task from Natural Question is to find the answer based on the full Wikipedia. And apparently it's a pretty popular benchmark. So a lot of people worked on that, including myself. And then we had a lot of progress And now I think the model performance is near human performance. So that's great. Um, But then 
one day I was just randomly looking at the data set and then the data set consists of question answer pairs. And then I, I hide it answers. I just look at the questions and I try to find the answer myself by searching over Wikipedia. Then I realized that actually answering to these questions is very difficult. And the reason was because in many cases, there are multiple valid answers to the question. And it's interesting because the question doesn't look ambiguous. So I think one example is, when did Meredith and Derek get married in Grey's Anatomy? So there are couples in a TV series, Grey's Anatomy, and we're asking when did they marry? It looks pretty simple, right? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't look ambiguous. Uh, but then when I searched over Wikipedia, I realized that this couple got informally married in one season and then got legally married in other season. So the answer depends on whether you meant informal marriage and legal marriage. And I can only figure it out only when I search over Wikipedia extensively to find the answer. I cannot really figure it out by only looking at the question. And then I found this occurs very frequently. Apparently, over 50% of questions in natural question data set are ambiguous. So, yeah, so we found this problem really exciting. So we annotated these questions with multiple valid answers and their disambiguation. And then we build a benchmark and then build models and so on. And only after a year later, I talked to Google people who created natural question data set. And then they were aware of this issue when they were creating data set. But I think they didn't necessarily try to solve the entire problem in a single paper, which is totally reasonable. But apparently this is a very challenging problem, even in Google. And then more recently, another team at Google did a follow-up work on top of MBQA, where now they rewrite answers to be a paragraph that lists out all the possible answers and the surrounding context. So hmm. yeah, that was kind of interesting to see how data set evolved over multiple teams. Yeah, in the Gray's Anatomy example you gave me, there's a specific type of ambiguity going on here, right? I've basically got an underspecified query where marriage could mean either legal marriage or informal marriage. Can you tell me anything about the different types of ambiguity that show up in your data set and perhaps how existing systems seem to perform in the face of different sorts of of ambiguities? Yeah, definitely. So one frequent type of ambiguity is when there is an ambiguity in event. So I think in this case, like there's an event which is marriage and there are multiple different ways, multiple different references of what marriage means. So I think that's one type. The other type is entity disambiguation, entity ambiguity. So it could be something like uh, Michael Collins it's asking about the birth date of Michael Collins, but there are multiple Michael Collins. So the model should figure out multiple different people that have this name Michael Collins and find all the birth dates of all of them. So that's another type. Another interesting ambiguity is the temporal ambiguity. So maybe the question could be about who is the current president of the United States? And the answer depends on when the question was asked. 
And similarly, there is a geographical ambiguity, which is what's the limit of alcohol beverage, um, something like that. And then it really depends on which country you are, maybe it depends on the state you are. Um, so in that case, the geographical context matters. So I think actually after MBQA, there is another paper called Situated QA that specifically focuses on this temporal and geographical type of ambiguity, which is quite interesting because now it depends on features that are beyond linguistic features. So the ambiguity problem seems really difficult right now. And I'm curious in your own estimation, say that from the modeling perspective, we managed to solve this problem at some point, never mind that maybe current benchmarks could continue to get harder. But let's just say that at some stage in the future, we figured out how to build systems that answer questions that seem ambiguous in some way or another. What's your What's your thought for how that manifests in practical tools that you and I might end up using? Yeah, so I guess one example is what, how does large language model out there perform on this task? And interestingly, I think this large language model still cannot solve this problem. Um, for instance, I think when there are multiple answers, some of those answers are tailed entities, which means they're popular answers, and others might be, oh, sorry. I mean, some of the answers are head entities, which are popular answers. And then there are other answers that are tail entities, which are, which are more rare and maybe less popular. And I think large language models are very good at predicting popular entities, but may not be very good on predicting rare entities as the answers. So I think they still need to figure out how to maximize the recall of the information that it generates. I think this would be a good place to pivot to another one of your papers in this benchmarking domain. And in this one on fact verification, you kind of identified this challenge that it's hard to construct a large scale fact verification data set with real world claims. Could you tell me a little bit about this work? Yeah, sure. So I think fact checking problem is very critical, especially because there is fake news or fake information out there on the internet. And it's more critical when it's in a domain of politics or science or medical, which are critical domains. Apparently, collecting data set for those domains is difficult because that requires experts. So when people deal with this problem at a large scale, they look at the Wikipedia articles and generate false or true claims from Wikipedia. So one of the most popular benchmark is called Fever. And what Fever does is they take sentences from Wikipedia and then rewrite it. And then if they rewrite it without changing the meaning, then that's going to be a true claim because that's exactly how Wikipedia states the information. And then they could also modify the statement to be false. For instance, maybe they just put a negation. Then the statement is going to be a false claim. So if I use the same Grace Anatomy example, then you could say something like, Meredith and Derek got married in Grace Anatomy. That's going to be a true claim. And then if they say Meredith and Derek didn't get married in Grace Anatomy, then that's false. But if you think about it, it's very easy because 
these simple claims are stated in Wikipedia quite explicitly. So they're not very confusing. And also there is a database bias because if they contain some negations, they are likely to be false. So our goal is whether we can write claims that are actually confusing so that the models are likely to be more struggled with. That makes sense. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of room here for questions that, as you said, are a little bit difficult to piece out and also depending on your interpretation of them, if they're underspecified, then they could be kind of true or false, depending on the assumptions you make about what certain things mean. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think that's even the problem beyond fact-checking, because traditionally fact-checking, the label is either true or false. But uh, the problem you mentioned seems even beyond that, which is depending on the condition, it could be either true or false, which is probably more interesting and more realistic. Yeah, there are a couple of um, things you said in this paper that I actually wanted to ask about. So in one part, you you mentioned that we use fact verification to, um, I'm quoting here, evaluate the amount of external knowledge a model has learned. And so I take that to mean external to the text a model is trained on. And I'm kind of curious how you validate that externality. Mm, I see. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think the external knowledge in that context means external knowledge that could be replaced without retraining the model. For instance, in uh, that specific paper, the external knowledge is Wikipedia corpus. Um, so the idea is the model could be trained on Wikipedia corpus that is based on a year ago, but then if we want a new model that operate over an updated Wikipedia corpus, then we can simply replace the Wikipedia to operate over new knowledge, but we don't need to retrain the neural model. There's one other part that stuck out to me is really interesting, in which you say that claims in the data set are verified to be natural, contain little lexical bias. And then this final phrase is really interesting to me. And require a complete understanding of the evidence for verification, which seems like a really desirable property for the data set. But I think as we've kind of dug into, seems like something that you would want to really be careful that the benchmark is verifying. So I'm wondering if you could unpack that part a little bit for me. Yeah, sure. So maybe to answer the question, I should probably describe how we exactly create a data set. That'd so awesome. we actually use an annotation from MBQA. So recall the previous example, we had this information about Meredith and Derek got married, but then they got informal married. They got informally married in season five and then got legally married in season seven. So idea in this paper is we want to create a more realistic and challenging false claims. And the idea to do that is we do some crossover between these two different interpretations of the question. So for instance, we say Meredith and Derek got informally married in season seven. And this is false because they got legally married in season seven, not informally married. And this is very challenging because apparently informal marriage and legal marriage are very close events. So in order to identify whether this is true or false, you really need to read the entire sentence to figure out if this sentence is talking about the informal marriage and legal marriage and identify that. 
So there's one aspect of this that I kind of want to dig into a little bit further. And it's sometimes even in sentences like this one, I think the sentence you gave is a really strong example where you probably do have to read the entire sentence in order to answer the question. But especially when it comes to pre-trained models, I wonder about the fact that you and I kind of construct, I guess, intuitions about what is required to answer a question in terms of the information that I must process in order to do so, right? So for you and I to answer this question about marriage, we would need to actually read through the whole sentence. But it some people seem to think that it's a pretty faulty maneuver to then take our own process for doing something like that and assume that a machine learning system is going to behave in the same way. And so I'm wondering if there's if you've given kind of further thought to being really careful and kind of ablating what's going on there in that regard. Mm, I see. So to rephrase your question, you mean uh, we hope the model to read the entire sentence and figure out if it means legal marriage or informal marriage and then judge the label accordingly. But then that might not how the model perform the task. Exactly, exactly. I see. I think that's true. And in some sense, I don't think our benchmark solved the problem entirely. Um, I think it's reasonable to say, even if we build our benchmark with our best effort to make the model that actually reads the sentences in Wikipedia, it might not be the case. But I think there could be two viewpoints. One is... That means we need to build a more challenging benchmark or maybe build a model, build the data in a more clever way, which I think is very important. The second is maybe we don't care because the problem we care about is whether it solves a real fact-checking problem. And if it gives you a right label, whether it can identify, if it can identify whether the claim is true or false, and we don't necessarily care about how the model solves this problem. We just want to have an accurate model. And I think both perspectives is valid. It really depends on what your goal is. I think you're making a really good point there. There certainly are a lot of contexts in which we might not necessarily care about something like what's going on internally to the model or its overall interpretability, just as long as in a particular context, the result is always what we expect it to be. And I guess that can mean a lot of different things for many different scenarios. But as long as the outcome is the same, then the means might not matter so much in certain cases. In the paper, one of your hopes for what this kind of benchmark could support was future progress and professional fact-checking. And I think especially today, um, you know, this is kind of our, our necessary chat GPT discourse, but with so many people using these systems, the need for something like a really good fact checker seems to become a lot more important, especially because these models often hallucinate things. And so if at some point, you know, you could develop something to the effect of an automated fact checker, that seems like it would be a really good boon to these systems. But I'm curious if there's anything else that sticks out to you in terms of potential applications for what a benchmark like this could support. Yeah, exactly. I think Verifying the model output generated by large language model like ChatGPT is a very challenging problem. It's actually a pretty unique problem, I think, because the 
type of errors ChatGPT makes seems to be quite different from the type of errors that human would make or maybe the fake news generate. So I think even under the umbrella of fact-checking, there are many different sub-problems that could have these unique features. So I think that's a very interesting avenue for future work. The another problem I'm excited about is, as I mentioned briefly earlier, fact-checking in critical domains like political news or medical or science. I think during COVID, we saw like there were so many information about COVID and we don't really know what we should trust or not. So I think it's really critical. But again, it's very difficult to create a data set for that because that requires annotation from experts, like actual doctors. So I think how to build our, how to make use of these deep learning models we have to tackle these real problems where there is limited data is a very interesting problem. That seems like a really exciting future direction. And I, I'm i curious what people will do about it. I think this would be a good place to pivot to some of your work on language modeling. And you've done a lot of really fascinating work in this domain. And in particular, you've studied prompting and in-context learning, studying different methods for making in-context learning effective, as well as how it works. Since multiple works we're going to touch on today study this phenomenon of in-context learning, maybe where we could start is a broad overview of what exactly in-context learning is. Yeah, sure. So traditionally, I think the way we learn a new task is to collect a large-scale label data and um, train the neural model using gradient updates. It could be trained from scratch, which has been done before pre-trained language models have existed. And then since we have pre-training existed, then we did fine-tuning over uh, pre-trained model on the label data that we care about. And that's how we solve the task. And in-context learning is a new way of learning a new task or performing a new task without gradient update. It's first proposed by the GPT-3 paper. So the idea is that you have the K-shot data where K can be small, so maybe only 16 pairs of input labels, and then you concatenate them into a single sequence, and then you prepend it to the test input that you care about. Then you fit everything into the language model and have it to complete the next token. And the idea is the token predicted by the model is likely to be the label assigned to the test input. So the idea here is that the K-shot examples fed into the model is giving some supervision to the model um, and it's kind of giving signal on what the expected task is. And then the model can learn the task from those examples and then perform the task as expected. So I think these K-shot examples are often called demonstrations because they're demonstrating the expected task. To make that a little bit more concrete, could you give an example of a type of demonstration you might provide to a model and then what it might output from that? Yeah, sure. So let's think of a simple task, which is sentiment classification. So we are given a movie review and we want to classify whether this is positive or negative. And let's say we have two examples. One says, this movie is amazing. And then the label is positive and then says, this movie is boring and then the label is negative. 
And then I have a new test input that we care about, which might be, um, I want to watch this movie again. So what we need to do is we concatenate all of these five sentences, um, input one, label one, input two, label two, and then the new test input. And then we fit into the language model. And then what's generated as a next token is going to be either positive and negative that represent whether the test input is positive or negative. That's a really great example. Thanks. So I think the, the story of in-context learning has been a kind of interesting one because to my understanding, it was first really fleshed out in the Brown et al. paper that introduced GPT-3. And they're like, hey, we found this emergent ability when you take this GPT stack of transformer decoders and just scale it up to a, a stupid size. And so after that, you and many others started studying that phenomenon to understand what is a more mechanistic explanation for what's going on here. Why does in-context learning work? So you had this really great work rethinking the role of demonstrations in which you gave some empirical evidence and backing to the point that certain aspects of a prompt mattered more than others. So perhaps with reference to our sentiment classification example, could you tease out a little bit what you found in this paper? What seems to matter for in-context learning? Yeah, sure. So if I think about in-context learning as learning a new task, just like fine-tuning would do, then it appears like the mapping between input and label is important. For instance, in the demonstration, we have a pair that says, this movie is amazing, and then a label positive. So I think kind of pairing between two seems to be a key to teach the model how to do the task. So I think that's the conjecture, and that's how fine-tuning works. The idea in our rethinking paper is that what if we replace each label in the demonstration with a random label? For instance, given a sentence, this movie is amazing, we could either assign positive or negative with some randomness. And then we could do that for all example in the demonstrations. And then we fit into the model and then see how well the model does. Now, if I think about fine tuning, then the model would not work at all because it will just see this random data and then maybe make a random guess. But in in-context learning, we find that this is not really true. The model still make a correct prediction in many cases. So if I, so if I compare the accuracy given the correct demonstrations and random demonstrations, then the gap between two models is much less than we previously thought. So in a really interesting blog post, you took some of the empirical things that you studied, the fact that the not necessarily the ground truth of the output matters, but the input distribution, the output space, the format, those mattering, seems to back this idea that in the process of in-context learning, a model is doing something like Bayesian inference, locating a concept it has already learned. Could you elaborate on that viewpoint for me a little bit and how your work provides evidence for it? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I think this e experiment really showed that the mapping between input and labels are not necessarily important to perform in-context learning, but 
what's rather important is the distributions of the inputs and distribution of output. For instance, if I replace inputs in the demonstrations to some text that is not really a movie review, then performance can be much worse. And if we replace the labels to something that is not either positive or negative, maybe like apple or banana, then the model doesn't work very well. So I think what's actually more important is it's conditioned on movie reviews. So it conditions on the right distribution of text. And then it generates something positive or negative next to it. So it knows that the movie reviews typically correlate with a positive sentiment or negative sentiment. And that's, I think, how the model figures out what they're supposed to do, which is to read the movie review and then figure out if it's a positive sentiment and negative sentiment. And I think that's related to the Bayesian inference paper that Michael did, who co-wrote the blog post together, because that means it's basically a, some sort of a conditional model where you need to first condition on the input distribution and then you compute a conditional probability. But the input distribution is more important because inputs are much longer than the label. Another aspect of this understanding is in response to a question that I think I sent to you, you specify that you think of learning as a model gaining a new intrinsic ability it hasn't had previously, if we sort of take that definition of learning. And to you, that has to be something that is done with gradient debate, with gradient updates. And so what happens at test time is really just a better location or activation of these intrinsic abilities the language model has picked up during training. There have been a series of recent works that connect in-context learning to gradient descent. And I think that's posed a really interesting question for what's happening within context learning in general. I think specifically one of them thought about in-context learning as a sort of meta-optimization process that was implicitly doing this sort of gradient descent. So I'm curious if that recent work complicates your view for this at all and whether that's and whether maybe you've reframed how you think of in-context learning at all. Yeah, yeah, it's actually very interesting because I think it's an active area of debate. I think there is a serious papers, including mine, but also including other papers that show that in-context learning is very different from gradient updates. But then there is another set of paper that says in-context learning is more of equivalent to fine-tuning. And I think in all of this paper, they focus on different problem setup, maybe different modeling approaches, so it's hard to do apple-to-apple comparison. I think it's just very exciting to see these kind of different views and debates, and I think it's largely ongoing, so I can't really make a conclusion here. I think it's just that in both sides, there is a fair argument. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So let's talk about a couple of the other works that you've done on in-context learning, and The next one I'd love to discuss is meta-ICL, where in this case, you are now learning to learn in context, which I think is interesting, especially because you're tackling this question. The Brown et al. paper originally found in their experiments that model size improved efficiency for learning in context, basically for a smaller value of K. I I provide fewer examples for 
this task of sentiment classification. It can figure out how to do it just as well. And they hypothesized that this would be a general trend. Here, you're examining how we can extract these same efficiency gains in a different way for a model of the same size. So could you introduce this work a little bit from that perspective? Yeah, exactly. So the idea is that the language models are pretty good on in-context learning, but in some sense, they have not really seen this specific in-context learning format during pre-training. So the idea is very simple. What if, if we use a collection of label data sets that we already have to make sure that the language model has seen some format that looks like demonstrations so that it can better make use of it? So it's very simple. And then we train the model on a large collection of data set that is near 100 and then test it on a new set of tasks that were totally unseen. And then we found that it works quite well. So that means even though it's still an unseen task, by looking at some examples that look like in-context demonstrations, then the model can learn how to make better use of it. In some sense, I think it's very related to instruction learning because instruction learning is also about, also based on the assumption that even though the language models already know how to follow instruction to some extent, it will do better if it has seen more instructions from different tasks. So actually, the instruction learning papers like T0 and Flynn came out almost concurrently to Meta-ICEL. And then I think the new version of instruction model like Flynn PAM incorporated this idea. So now they're using both instructions and in-context demonstrations. And this seems to give the best performance, which is pretty exciting. That's really interesting. Some of these ideas of task transfer, of course, go back really early, I think, to some of the earlier transfer learning literature before we were even looking at LLMs. And I think that one notion, I can't remember how much it was studied back then, was this idea of the distance between tasks. And I'm curious about that aspect of your work in Meta-ICL. Are there any cases where you found task transfer to be particularly robust in a way that matched your intuitions? Yeah, that's a very interesting question because I think that's, again, an ongoing area of research. To some extent, I think it matches human intuition, on, which is the training tasks that are similar or relevant to the target task would be more beneficial. So if you're interested in some sentiment classification task about movie reviews, then it's perhaps more helpful to look at other sentiment classification data sets that are maybe not movie reviews, so they're not identical, but it still belong to the same task. So I think that's an intuitive part. There is unintuitive part, which show that sometimes you train the model on data that seems totally irrelevant, but it still helps. And it sometimes helps even more than training on related tasks. So there is one paper jointly from NYU, Anthropic, and a few authors that says that actually if you train on some data from Google support, so it's like question answering data on how to use some Google features. And that's not really related to sentiment classification or 
topic classification data sets that we use as a target data set, but actually that's more helpful than training on similar data sets. So I think to summarize, there are some cases that match human intuition on how relevant a task is, but sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, one related question I'm really curious about, and I think this might be a little bit harder to articulate in the context of Bennett ICL, but I'll give it a try here. So there's another really interesting paper that is more in the reinforcement learning domain called Avalon, and they are broadly trying to develop a very general benchmark suite of kind of realistic actions where you have this agent and it is set moving about in an environment and it can do very basic things. It can like pick up objects. And in the process of that, you would want to train it to do some of these very basic tasks, right? And at some point you might want to evaluate it and to evaluate it, you might actually ask it to do something that involves a a composition of multiple different tasks. So it might have to pick up something it might have to, you know, traverse some domain, walk across a bridge. So analogously, I'm wondering about the role of compositionality in a system like Meta-ICL, where could you, at least intuitively, or do you know of any work that has studied this aspect of maybe I, I ask a model or I train it to do these sort of seemingly disjoint types of tasks. So maybe one is more geared towards something like fact verification. Maybe one is more about sentiment analysis. And then I evaluate it, asking it to do something that combines those two. Yeah, that's very interesting. I don't think we tackled that problem in meta ICL paper, but I think there are newer paper that tackle this problem. For instance, there is one paper from Duelda et al., that says you can train multiple models that are an expert to a single data set. So in some sense, they are regular fine-tuned model on each data set, but then you can combine the weight over multiple models to enable the model to use the feature that are composition of two different features from two different data sets. So I think it's very interesting. I think it's still pretty uh, preliminary. So we'll have to deep dive into this to see if how much extent it does this compositional behavior. It seems like there are a number of works that have been exploring that compositionality recently. I guess there's the the Git Rebasin work that is definitely very explicitly like let's combine models trained on different data sets. I recall there was another one about task vectors, I believe. And the, yeah. I, like, the implementation too was just so elegant. You're literally like I have my fine-tuned model, I'm going to subtract the weights of my pre-trained model, and like even the code just express the idea so elegantly, which I thought was really fun. It's very elegant, yeah. The, the idea of steering models seems like a really interesting and kind of important direction at this stage. Right, yeah. I would want to understand better on how much it can do compositional generalization, and maybe there are some limitations how much of them still remain challenging, that would be a very interesting avenue for future research. Another question in this work you considered that maybe has some overlaps with the question of task closeness is you looked into the number of meta-training tasks, which is pretty important independently, as well as their diversity in extracting performance on a target task. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your own intuitions about how this diversity or density and the number of meta-training tasks affects task transfer. 
Yeah, so I think the idea here is that we know that if the training data sets include a data set that is more relevant to the test data, then it's likely to be more helpful. And that means if we include more data set and more diverse data set, then it's more likely that an arbitrary task data will find one of them relevant. So I think that's my intuition on how the number of data sets and diversity is playing an important role. One interesting thing though is I think the gains by using more training data sets at some point. So in our paper, we only train on uh, around 100 data sets, which is still relatively small, but there are more recent paper that scale the number of tasks into even thousand. And then they also find that as you increase the number of training data sets, you get more gains. But actually, you get most gains when you increase the number to 100. And then the gains from 100 to 1000 is not as significant, which is also interesting. Yeah, yeah, that it seems like model saturation is something that we tend to see a lot. And so it's interesting, but I guess not entirely surprising. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Actually, there is another interesting thing we found, which is related to the rethinking demonstrations that we wrote earlier. So the idea is in this rethinking demonstration, the model kind of ignores the input label mapping. So in some sense, it doesn't really know how to make use of input label mapping in the demonstrations. And one hypothesis is if you're training the model to explicitly look at the demonstrations, then maybe the model will learn how to make use of input label mapping better. Right? Hmm. That's interesting. Do, do you think that's true or maybe you disagree with this? I'd, I'd have to think about it more. <laughs> well, I thought it would be the case because if you're training with demonstrations, then perhaps the model should learn to better make use of demonstrations. But apparently my hypothesis turned out to be wrong. So actually the meta-trained model ignores the input label mapping more than regular language model does. And this is pretty consistent over other papers. Other papers also find it to be the case. Yeah, I guess now that you put it that way, it does seem, I don't know, if it was already ignoring the input label mapping in one case, then it does seem like as you scale up the number and the types of demonstrations that you're providing to it, especially if you're asking it to train across a diversity of in-context learning tasks, then I, I can kind of see an intuition there. But I guess I'm also like constructing this intuition after you've already explained the result to me. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think our conjecture is that this meta-training helps the model to learn the format of demonstration better. So it learns better on how to better locate the task that it already learned during pre-training. But it perhaps doesn't seem to teach the model an entirely new ability. It just helps the model to better locate the task that is already learned during training. And I mention this because I think it's related to the fact that more training task doesn't seem to help so much after a certain point because learning the format is relatively easy. And maybe you don't benefit so much from looking at thousands of tasks. 
Yeah, this is great, actually. I was just going to ask you if you could articulate some of the takeaways from Meta ICL in the context of our earlier chat about Bayesian inference and the role of that. So I guess the way I kind of read it as well is if ICL is locating a concept, then doing it more efficiently would mean to me, of course, that fewer examples are required for the model to figure out the right concept. And so by doing this process of meta-ICL, by sort of preparing the model in this way, it kind of figures out how to navigate through its concept space a little bit, perhaps. And so when you finally feed it your target task, it's, if this makes sense, kind of already almost there. Exactly, exactly. So I think it's very effective because it gives you better performance. It makes it more efficient in terms of few shot examples that you need, but it wouldn't really allow you to do a totally new thing if pre-training has already teached that. Let's talk about a third work on in-context learning you did. And in ZICL, you introduced this idea of zero-shot in-context learning with pseudo-demonstrations, sort of introducing another way of getting models to do this better. Could you tell me a little bit about what you did in that work? Yeah, yeah. So actually, the full credit should be go to the first author, uh, Xu But Yeah, the idea is if... What we found from rethinking demonstrations is that perhaps the actual task was already learned by pre-training and in-context learning is merely about better locating them. And if that's true, then that means maybe the model can perform the task zero-shot. But then if we don't use demonstrations at all, then it doesn't perform very well. And I think it's because it's still beneficial to specify the input distributions and the output distribution of the task. So then the question is, can we specify input distribution and label space without actually using label data? So the idea here is that we can use some external corpus, like raw corpus, and use retrieval to find a subset of sentences that are most related to the test input and then use it to fit into the model just like it's a, it's like a demonstration. It's pseudo demonstration because it's not an actual demonstration of a task, but still it's sufficient enough to specify the correct distribution of the task. One of the things you discussed in this paper was this idea of something called the copying effect. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So let's think about an extreme case where your corpus is very big. It includes all the web data. So it happens to include a movie review that is identical to the movie review that you care about. Like, this movie is amazing, something like that. So if you retrieve that sentence and then pair with random label, then what's going to happen is that the model would simply copy the label assigned to this identical input because the model is very good at copying and it will try to mimic the continuation of the text that it has seen from demonstrations. So that means now assigning a random label to the demonstration may not work very well because it will copy the incorrect label. I'm curious how you think about the aspect of closeness when it comes to this copying effect, because certainly if your demonstration contains something that is going to show up in your test, then if the two examples are precisely the same. Yes, your model is going to copy things over. What if 
something is subtly different about them. Or if I ask a question, say the answer is like the name of a movie or something, but then in the actual test example, the same question is asked, the same answer is there, but maybe it's asked in a slightly different way. Did you find kind of similar effects there? Or do you have any intuitions about how this copying effect might function when there are subtle differences? That's a really great question because I don't have a good answer for that. We did a lot of like qualitative analysis on examples. And then what we know for sure is if the demonstration example seems relevant, then it seems to affect the model prediction. But it's really hard to quantify this similarity. I think one important feature is lexical overlap. If there is much lexical overlap, it seems to copy more. But sometimes there can be more paraphrasing, and then it still affects the model prediction a lot. And sometimes if paraphrasing is more significant, then it doesn't affect model prediction that much. So yeah, I think it's a bit hard to draw a boundary or define what similarity actually means. That's a really great question. I think that could be something we can do in future work. Yeah, well, definitely. I think I'd be excited to see you study that. Before we move on to your chain of thought prompting paper, there's a last question I kind of want to ask more broadly on ICL. So we discussed some of the theories around ICL and gradient descent earlier. And I think that there are a lot of attempts to explain what exactly is going on here. I think another notable one is the idea of induction heads introduced by Anthropic. And for anyone listening who doesn't know too much about this, to give them like a very short shrift, induction heads basically when a model is processing a token, search over their context for previous examples of that present token. And I think if they find that token in the context, then they look at the following token and copy it. And actually, that kind of sounds very similar to the copying effect that you were just explaining to me, but kind of on a token level. They're repeating previous sequences of tokens to form these new completions. And I'm wondering, given all of the literature that's come out on this phenomenon since you published Rethinking Demonstrations, I guess in our conversation so far, it seems to me like your intuitions about this still accord with the Bayesian framework that Michael Shea introduced. But I'm curious if the work that's come out since then has refined your intuitions at all in what's going on, or if anything has changed for you and how you think about it in context learning. Yeah, that's a really great question. I think you're right that there are many features that in context learning uses. So one is the lexical prior or semantic prior of the space, like whether the label says it's positive or negative, but then there is a copying effect, which are not always the literal copying. It could be more soft copying in a sense that it allows some paraphrasing. And then I think there is um, this like conditional probability where it try to condition on the text and then try to make a next token prediction based on that. And in some sense, I think they're all competing with each other. So which part matters more than the other all really depends on the setting. And then every time I see a new paper, I think the takeaway I have, it, it's more complicated than I thought because it really depends on setting. It really depends on the family of the models maybe also the scale of the model and what downstream tasks we look at. So 
Yeah, I don't think it's a very informative answer. I I think my short takeaway is it's complicated seems to be my short takeaway. I think that just means it'll be a really exciting area to watch flourish. And perhaps we'll see even more theories come up to try to explain what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think it's a good thing to try to come up with a single answer. I think all the answers are valid ones. Yeah. I think now that we've beaten this in-context learning horse to death, we can um, talk a little bit about your work on understanding chain of thought prompting. So maybe we can start by introducing what chain of thought prompting was or is in the first place. Yeah, yeah. So the idea of chain of thought prompting from Jason Way is when we are interested in a complex task that involves multi-step reasoning, then it's often beneficial to explicitly generate those step-by-step solution and then generate the answer. So I think then example is some sort of a mathematical problem where it says something like, Sarah had seven chocolates, her sister had three more chocolates, they ate two, then what's the final number of chocolates? Then it involves a series of equations like seven plus three, because that's the total number of chocolate, and then minus two, because they ate two of them. So the final answer is eight. And the idea of chain of thought prompting is really just to write down all the thought process, like Sarah has seven chocolate, her sister had three, so now they have 10 in total, now they ate two, so finally they have 10 minus two equal eight chocolates, so the final answer is eight. And they show that generating this entire solution is better than trying to generate the final answer in one term. So I think the natural question then to ask about the style of prompting is how slash why does it work? And I suppose that's exactly what you were getting at in this paper. So could you tell me a little bit about how you designed your experiments to sort of understand the different aspects of rationales given in these prompts and how it works? Yeah, so that work is really done by the first author, Bo Xi Wang. But uh, yeah, basically... The motivation is similar to rethinking the role of demonstrations in a way that we want to find how much of correctness of the solution matters. And in our previous paper, we only looked at the classification and multi-choice problems, which are relatively easy. But we want to see if that works in a more free-form generation setup. And what we found is that, first of all, if we generate, um, if we construct the demonstrations to pair the input with a totally random solution, then performance is very bad. So it can't be random output. But if we write a solution in a way that it sounds like a reasonable solution, but is incorrect, then model performance is not affected. So in case of this chocolate example, then we still want to generate a solution that says something about Sarah and something about chocolate. But we could generate a solution that says Sarah has seven chocolate, her sister has three. So in total, they have seven minus three equal four chocolate. And then now they ate two. So it's four plus two equals six chocolate in total. So you can see it looks reasonable if you don't care about the actual equation, but they're actually less. They're doing plus when it's supposed to the minus and vice versa. Yeah, and I think a, a way to interpret some of those results, and I think the way that you kind of 
gestured at in this paper is the things that seem to matter in chain of thought prompting, the model kind of identifying what is not the exact fact that is going on here, like I did the arithmetic wrong, but what is the way to approach this question seems to cohere with the same Bayesian framework that you use to understand in context learning. Is that how you think about it also? Yeah, I think so. It's very interesting. For instance, if I use another solution that is technically correct because it contained the correct equation, but if I just say maybe Kevin instead of Sarah, then performance is much worse than when I'm using wrong equation. So it really looks like you need to keep the correct distribution. And here the correct distribution means where you're using the same keyword like Sarah and chocolate rather than whether your solution is actually correct. I think this would be a good place to perhaps pivot to another section of research you've done. And this focuses more on representation and retrieval of text, which is a pretty different set of focuses from what we've been discussing so far. So perhaps could you introduce this area of your research at a high level? Yeah, sure. Actually, it's interesting because I think that's the main area of research I have done during PhD. So the idea is in language models, the all it has is parameters. So I'll call it parametric models. And it relies on its parameters that it has learned during pre-training to solve a lot of downstream tasks. And they're very impressive. But if I think about some tasks that require long tail information that it could struggle a lot. So one example is factoid task. For instance, who is the president of the United States? Then you really need to memorize this fact in your parameters to answer this question. Now, maybe the US president is easy because it has occurred many, many times on the web, so you memorize that. But if it's more long tail, maybe a president of another country, then the model may not have memorized this fact. So it could struggle. And another problem it is it is stale. For instance, the US president could change over time. And then whenever I ask a question to the model, then it will give me an answer based on the time it was pre-trained and it will never be updated. So that's the problem of parametric models. Now, when we use non-parametric model, so I call it non-parametric model because now you have some external knowledge. It's like a external data, and then that's a non-parametric component. And then we can use this non-parametric model to do retrieval over them and then find some relevant text to find a knowledge that is relevant to the query that I actually care about. For instance, if I ask about US president, then I can search over a knowledge source like Wikipedia, and perhaps the most updated Wikipedia, and then find a paragraph about the current US president and then return the answer. So it can be more up-to-date and it will be more precise because it is explicitly retrieving the evidence text and then answer the question based on them. And I guess I guess an example we're seeing of this today that everybody seems kind of obsessed with is the original chat GPT not having access to the internet and then Microsoft's Bing or Sydney, as it apparently likes to call itself, being hooked up to the internet, which appears to produce all sorts of weird behavior. 
Yeah, exactly. That's an uh, one exciting problem. We're we are quite excited about it because we have been looking at this problem for a while. And then now it looks like it's getting a lot of attention. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So in the work dense passage retrieval, you focused on improving the retrieval component in open domain question answering, where, as we discussed earlier, this task involves answering questions using a collection of documents. Could you tell me a little bit about how there was a two-stage framework developed for this type of QA problem and then where your focus came from in this work? Yeah, sure. So the two-stage pipeline was proposed much earlier in 2017 from Dan Chichen et al. Basically, it decomposed the entire problem into retrieval and reading. So in retrieval problem, we have a user question and we retrieve a set of a small number of documents from Wikipedia that is relevant to the question. And once it is done, we fit into the language model and then let the model to generate the answer based on the passages that are being retrieved. Now, the interesting part is the second stage is actually relatively easy because if you can find passages that guaranteed to answer the question, then it's pretty easy to extract the answer from that passage. But the difficult part is how you can find a small number of paragraphs from the entire Wikipedia that has millions of passages. And if it's beyond Wikipedia, then it could be billions or trillions. So quite surprisingly, in 2019, the state of the art was still lexical-based matching, which is just looking at how much string overlap there is. So there is some neural-based model, but they were limited because they either require a lot of label data or large-scale pre-training. And then the dense passage retrieval was one of the earlier work that showed that actually even without large-scale label data or pre-training, you can build a good neural retrieval model. And the idea here is that you represent every passage in Wikipedia into a vector. And I call it dense vector because it's a low dimensional dense vector. And then I map the question to the same vector space and then compare an inner product score. And this inner, inner product score represents the similarity between the question and passage. So if we choose the ones that has the highest inner product scores, then they're likely to be the most relevant passages. Yeah, it's it's interesting just noticing the compositional nature of like what you had to do here. And you can definitely see how it's a little bit more difficult. So I guess in this work, as you said, you could feasibly, I mean, if you're doing inner product search, you could feasibly use any encoder. And then here you're using BERT. And I guess at this point, there are like many well-known maximum inner product search algorithms. I think the one you referenced was um, Srivastava, which I know he's done a lot of work on that front, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I guess something, I, I guess in general, it seems like a lot of the embedding methods around the time you were tinkering around with this and getting this to work have enabled really interesting styles of semantic search. But it's it's kind of interesting just to see the application of retrieval and like a, as sort of a component in this larger structure. Definitely. And I would even argue that it's not an easy problem. I think it really depends on what you mean by similarity. But in this context of question answering, 
Similarity means that not only it's relevant to the question, but it also should contain an answer to a specific question. And sometimes it's a very specific information that is very fine-grained. And storing all the meanings that passage has into a low-dimensional vector is not easy. So in the paper, we had a lot of technical details to make it work. In some sense, they look like an implementation detail, but actually, if we don't have any of them, then it doesn't work. So I think in practice, it's not easy to make it work. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I think the the disaggregation of how you do this retrieval does suggest some very immediate ways that it could be improved, right? Like you have a better maximum inner product search algorithm, and then automatically the method becomes more efficient. Or you have a better text encoder than BERT that leverages or, or gives us better representations for whatever better means. And I know that you sort of wanted to train things so that relevant passages actually had higher inner products with, you know, your, your search query. But if you have maybe a slightly better encoder, things get better. Are there other ways that you think about improving a retrieval method like this? Mm, I think your summary was already really great. I think one is to have a better representation model, basically the encoder that can give you a better representation about the passage, maybe doing something more complicated with inner product search and so on. Maybe I think one interesting dimension is if we can go beyond simple relevance search. So it's a bit related to the MBQA work that we discussed earlier, but in MBQA, you need to maximize the recall. And that means you want to maximize the union of information that a set of passages contain rather than simply maximizing the inner product between question and individual passage. So if we go that way, then I think the problem is more challenging because now it's about a union of passages instead of individual passage. Yeah, that's another interesting way to put this. So... Earlier when you were introducing the text retrieval problem, you spoke about the difference between parametric models and what you refer to as non-parametric. So kind of going off of that, you have another really interesting work called non-parametric masked language modeling. Um, I'd love for you to, to introduce that work and what you were focusing on here. Yeah, sure. So I think maybe I'll motivate with ChatGPT plus Bing example. So we have Bing, which retrieve a set of documents. We fit into language model, and language model can make a generation. But it doesn't really guarantee that it actually generates the answer based on retrieved passages. Number one is it doesn't really guarantee. Like the model could totally decide to ignore the passages and make up the generation if they want. Right. And then the second problem is there is a bias in language model that it is more likely to generate entities or phrases that it has seen more frequently. So, for instance, if the if we ask a question where the right answer is a extremely rare entity, then the language model wouldn't really generate that entity, no matter how accurate the retrieval system is because it has just never generated that entity during pre-training. So this retrieve and generate framework doesn't solve all the problems. And that's why we propose this new approach called non-parametric language modeling. In this case, the idea is 
it's a mask language model. So the goal is to fill in the blank, but then now we need to fill in the blank solely from retrieval. So there is now no two stage. It's just one stage. It's a language model that is done solely from retrieval. So the way we do that is we have all the representations of the phrases appearing in the corpus and we are retrieving a phrase from the corpus directly and then return it as the answer. So that has two benefits. One is that it now guarantees that the model prediction is based on retrieval because we are directly returning the phrase that is retrieved. So now it's more attributable because you can see the context that this phrase is from. So that can give you some sort of explanation. So the second benefit is that it makes you better at predicting rare entities. It can even generate entities that it has never seen. Maybe the entity that you made up because how exactly the entity's surface form look like is not very important. The model will figure out the context surrounding the entity. And then if that context seems relevant, then it will return the entity as a prediction. And in this work, you also discussed two challenges to training a model like this. So one of them being that full corpus retrieval during training is going to be very expensive. The other that learning to predict arbitrary length phrases without a decoder is non-trivial. Can you tell me a little bit about, well, perhaps maybe first you could elaborate on those problems a little bit, but then could you also tell me a bit about how you went about solving them? Yeah, so for the first problem, Training a retrieval problem is in general harder than training a language model because you need to keep the retrieval corpus during training, but the representation of this retrieval corpus is being updated and updated, and it's hard to keep them updated. It can be very expensive. And there are some papers that is in retrieval that come up with how to efficiently update this index, which is also very valuable. But the proposal we have in this paper is we use an in-batch approximation. This means that we are using a batch which is very large, and then we compose the batch in a way that it consists of relevant context. So the idea here is that we kind of consider this batch as the full corpus. So it's some sort of approximation. It's a very strong approximation because however this batch However large this batch is, it's going to be significantly smaller than the full corpus. However, the idea is if we can construct a batch in a clever way, then it can be a reasonable approximation of the full corpus. So that's how we uh, solve the first problem. And by the way, I want to clarify that we are not the first one that solved this problem. There has been all other work that used the same approach. We just brought this up for the language modeling problem. And then for the second problem about the phrase, the way we did is we modeled the start token and end token separately. So by defining start and end, it will automatically allow arbitrary length phrase. Yeah, and then this idea was also taken from prior work that focused on phrase retrieval in other settings. So I guess we kind of discussed both the origins, the main idea of this work, and then some contemporary examples. Can you tell me about any kind of follow-on work that is going on on this front and anything that you're looking at right now? Yeah, so I'm excited about this idea because I think there are fundamental problems in language models that 
I believe that are not going to be solved, even if we have the better language models that are larger. So I think one problem is this hallucination. The model could make up things that are not true. And I think in order to solve this problem, non-parametric modeling is necessary because that guarantee that every prediction the model makes are grounded in some part of the data that you trust. So I think this solves a fundamental problem that the language model has. The other issue is privacy and the ownership of the model. So I think we all know that language models are trained on vast amount of data that could include some private information or licensed data. Um, and that could be harmful in some cases. And I think like people think there are some legal issues with the use of this data as well. The good part of non-parametric model is that the encoder of this non-parametric model could be trained on relatively small data that doesn't include any private information or legal, legally risky documents. But then if you want, then you can build a non-parametric data store with the private information or in-house custom data. And then you can use that to get a better prediction. But if you want to remove that information, then you can easily do that. And that wouldn't affect the rest of the model prediction. So I think it's actually a fundamental way of solving a lot of problems that language models have. Those are some really key aspects. And I think that NPM sounds like a very exciting way of tackling those. I'm curious at a broader level, there are the two problems you mentioned that are very well-known fundamental problems with language models, there are also issues like limited context length. I'm curious if there are any other sorts of limitations that you're at least paying attention to that you think are really high priority in terms of being solved. Mm, yeah, I think the two problems I mentioned seems very critical. The other avenue is more on verification. So I think... Language models can generate very impressive results, but we need verification on them because otherwise we'll have to blindly accept them without any verification. Or humans could do verifications themselves, but oftentimes they're very expensive. I'm not sure if you have the same experience, but I had some experience where I asked questions to ChatGPT and it generate response that looks very reasonable. It seems correct to me. And then I tried to verify it over web. I couldn't really find any evidence about that. I hope to have some evidence that either support this or contradict it. Then I think the conclusion will be very clear, but I just couldn't find the evidence. So I think the verification and attribution problem is very critical. And it's even more critical in domains like medical and politics. The attribution idea of like, okay, I'm going to give you an answer to your question and then I'll cite a source. That always seems like a promising way to go about it. And I I think that UChat introduced this at one point. Um, and I think that they're, they're still, I think they fixed the issue by now, but I remember kind of seeing an earlier tweet where somebody was like, oh, it's really exciting because I can get an answer from this chat model and it gives me a source, but the source is made up. And so it's it's just like, you know, you're, you're kind of going all the way down the rabbit hole at this stage. And certainly the hallucinations for these things start to appear when you go to a reasonable level of depth. But I, I do see that verification aspect of being really important to this as well. 
Yeah, exactly. I cannot really tell about you.com because I don't know how exactly the model works, but I assume that they are also generated by the language model. And as I said earlier, even though there is some retrieval component, language models are not guaranteed to actually make use of this retrieval. So I think that's the fundamental problem of language models. I think this would be a good place for my usual closing section of random questions I have for you about doing work in machine learning. And so you're, you're, you're a few years into your PhD at this stage. And I think that there is a lot of discourse about the difficulty of doing a PhD in general, particular things about doing machine learning PhDs, especially the different research directions that people seem to focus on. It seems like everything is about language models these days. And I I just love for you to maybe relate a little bit about your personal experience kind of doing a PhD so far, what it's been like for you, what have been some of your challenges so far? Yeah, I think we are living in a very exciting area because NLP seems to be evolving a lot and people outside of NLP and even outside of university seems to be very excited about this problem. So it's very exciting. But I think a lot of people in academia have these concerns that most resources, like large language models, are done in industrial labs. And it feels like maybe academic labs have less avenue for research. But I don't think that's true. I think it's true that academic people cannot train a very large language model. And I don't think that's our role. Like we don't have to train large language models, but I think we can focus on fundamental problems that large language models don't have. And I think identifying the issues that models have is very important. And it's very important that these are the not the issues that only current models have, but maybe a model a year after will solve. But it should be a more fundamental problem. Um, so I think the hallucination and privacy attribution, these are the problems that I'm pretty sure that even the better language model, maybe two years later or three years later, wouldn't solve. So I think that's kind of what academic research can do. But yeah, I'm still figuring out. So I don't think I have a concrete answer other than that. Sure. Yeah, I think that's a that's an interesting way of chopping it up, though, sort of the university, the academic institution as a site for more basic research, as people like to call it. And of course, the labs are going to have the ability to do that more applied work. But you can still kind of extract a lot of things. You can work with smaller models. You can still do inference with large language models if you can't train them. And there are many, many different problems, as you've done in your own work, that you can you can really dig into there. Yeah, I think there are many avenues, like how to make it more efficient, how to do better inference and efficient training. These are also all avenues. And I think kind of democratizing this language modeling research is also an important avenue for future work. Mm -hmm. Beyond the aspects of, of being within NLP, where there's this really interesting set of questions about the important research questions people should be working on, I'm curious if there are any parts of doing your PhD you can speak to that have felt particularly difficult, 
or particularly joyful for you, things you've liked, you've disliked? I think the greatest part of PhD and also the hardest part of PhD is that we are here to pursue longer term research that matters five years later, not a year later or shorter than that. So that's great because I'm not expected to produce many short-term goals. Like I'm not evaluated based on an yearly basis, which I think is fundamentally different from industry. Because in industry, you're getting evaluated much frequently. So that's a great part. But that also means that the research I'm doing is more risky and it's very natural they will not go very well. In some sense, I was very lucky that many of my research is still relevant right now, but I could also imagine a lot of them got less relevant in five years and maybe it feels a bit unsuccessful. I think it's very natural and there's nothing wrong with that, but I still need to learn how to deal with that this failure mode and how to recover that. And so I think that's a harder part. My last question then would be this. So of course you are still doing your PhD. And I think that giving advice about these things can be rather hard, but I'll ask anyway. So if you were speaking to somebody who is perhaps a few years junior to you, maybe wants to walk in similar footsteps or maybe if you want to speak to yourself from a few years ago, is there is there any advice you'd give them about about doing a PhD, about making a success or doing interesting work? Oh, that's a very difficult question. But um, I think maybe one advice is not be anxious about short-term things. Like, for instance, I think uh, one very common concern that PhD students have is it looks like there are so many papers out there every day. There are some people that are writing papers maybe every year or multiple papers a year. And it feels like I also have to write some papers to be successful. But I think that's really not the case because my outcome of my result of PhD will be evaluated only after five years. So it's more important to have more risky, longer-term research than generating many, many papers that maybe have shorter impact. That's really difficult, I think. And that requires a lot of thinking. I I feel like the Twitter ML ecosystem just makes this a lot worse because you're watching everybody like, look at this new iClear paper that I just got accepted. <laughs> yeah, I had a Twitter um, app installed in my iPhone, and then I deleted it at some point because that makes me so stressful. <laughs> I, I did the same, um, I guess not for the same reasons, you know, I'm not publishing papers right now, but for very similar reasons, I think it's impossible just not to get drawn into all of that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, in some sense, it's exciting that a lot of active research is going on, but we don't necessarily have to feel stress about this. Yeah, and I think this is especially important for, I would imagine, people who aspire to be academics. I mean, I guess it's tricky, right? Because there's there are a lot of incentives, even for tenured professors or professors in general, that when you go into academia, there's the aspirational version of this where your goal is to produce new knowledge and 
whatever, you know, that shouldn't necessarily mean having to publish five, 12 papers a year, but that's unfortunately the, the proxy we've settled on, it seems, for what it means to produce new knowledge. And so I think we're still in a state where it's like, we're kind of optimizing for the wrong thing here. I'm, I'm curious if that sort of jives with your own experience with professors you've worked with. I think I have agree with that. I think you're right that we still have metrics that are more visual, like maybe citations or number of papers. But I think in the end, people who actually evaluate people like hiring committee actually care about the impact of work. And in some sense, they are expert in evaluating that. So they're really good on identifying what is really impactful work and not. So I think even though the impact doesn't seem to be immediate, people will figure it, figure it out. So I would not worry too much about metrics appearing to be wrong because it's just one metric, but it might be not the metric that actually matters. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I would imagine that as a researcher, you really have to watch things play out over probably multiple decades to watch multiple fads kind of come and go, to see different research directions pan out, not just like individual projects to really develop a for how these things work. Yeah, that's very difficult. It's impossible for junior people like me, but I'm very lucky to have advisors who have this long horizon and they're the really ones who help me to plan on this long-term research. So that's actually the very good part of being doing PhD, you work with advisors who are world expert. Yeah, definitely. I, I guess that speaks to the the advice you always kind of hear for people looking at PhD programs really, really focus on the advisor. I, I guess that makes a huge difference, of course. Yeah, yeah. It's really all about who you want to work with rather than where you do PhD or whether you do PhD. Well, Soen, this was a really fantastic conversation. I think that you are doing some really just phenomenal work, some great science. And I've thoroughly enjoyed reading lots of your papers. I'm excited to see where your different research directions go in the future. So I want to thank you for all the work you're doing and also for taking the time to chat with me today. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. And I really enjoyed all the discussions. They were really engaging and very thoughtful. So thanks so much. I really enjoyed this time. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.